I, I don't know the word. I don't. I'm trying not. I'm, I'm trying my best not to swear. But, <laughs> okay. I mean, it's um, okay, right? Yeah. Oh, fine. okay, yeah, okay. So like, <laughs> it's just like publication. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Bet. So then when we see that, it's just like, hey, fuck y'all. Like yeah. we're gonna side with this, and like we don't give a damn about the student of uh the the student of color experience at the fall off. Welcome to another episode of Page 29. My name is Shane Renee. Today, we have a couple very interesting stories for you. The first of which, um, a DePaul Law School professor, Manu Beatty, uh, recently wrote a column for the Chicago Tribune under the headline, Stop and Frisk is not racist, and we need to stop saying it is. Stop and Frisk, the uh, policy that was made really famous by Mike Bloomberg, who until very recently was running for president, the conversation was... Um, Coming up about this policy, um, he wrote this column. It sparked quite a bit of controversy. Uh, with me to discuss, uh, we have a couple of reporters and a special guest. Ella Lee, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks for having me on. Opinions Editor Emma Oxnavad, how's it going? Doing well. And our special guest, Vice President of the Black Law School Students Association, Archie Foster. How's hey, it going? I'm good, glad to be here. Awesome. So, uh, Emma and Ella, first, you guys sat down with um, Beatty and talk to him about some of the backlash and his thoughts on this. What did he have to say? Um, well, yeah, it seemed to me that he wasn't really anticipating that people might be upset by what he said, at least in our conversation. Um, he seemed very wrapped up, and when he was explaining himself, seemed wrapped up in like the legal definition of stop and frisk, because the crux of the piece is that, you know, stop and risk in theory is not like a racist practice, but like the way that it's been implemented, specifically under Mike Bloomberg's tenure in New York, is. Um, which I don't really, to me, that didn't really come across in the article. I think he maybe, he, I think he maybe could have tried to explain that better in the piece itself. But yeah, it seemed to me that he was kind of like locked in his own like legal technical definition that he didn't see like why it might uh, irk people that he said that and like maybe the implications of what he was saying were maybe lost on, on him when he was writing it, definitely. And the thing that really struck me was the headline. The headline was mm -hmm. very, very pro provocative. Yeah. Ella, do you think that the headline matched the tone of the story? Very well. I think that the headline is a little bit exploitative, just because I, I do think that when you go into the the story, he's not saying that stop and frisk is not racist. Mm -hmm. He's saying that the law, like the legal definition, is not racist. Mm -hmm. My guess is the Tribune wrote it, but we didn't ask him. Um, we didn't ask him that, but my guess is that the Tribune wrote it, as typically news organizations do. Yeah, especially with guest writers, yes. yeah. things like that. But then the way that it is being implemented by police, by other officials, has become racist. Mm -hmm. So I think the headline is definitely a little bit clickbaity. However, you know, I mean, this is a pretty clickbaity argument to make, really. Like, yeah. I mean... I think sort of like what Emma said, this, the, the way that he's trying to, he's just very caught up in, in the legal aspect of it. He's, he's not thinking so much about how the law does impact the people. He's just thinking about the wording. And yeah. like, Too much sure, like you can nice. like write down any word and like it's not racist, you know, but like it doesn't matter because if it's impacting people, then like it is, you know, um, and in my opinion, at least. Um, I mean, people read this article to 
come from a relatively racist perspective, or at least a very tone deaf one. Yeah. Um, what was his, how did he kind of rebut or discuss that perception of his story? So essentially, when he was speaking with us, what he was saying is that like, if you go into the legal document and you look at this law, like the actual wording of it does not have to be racist. That is what he was saying. However, in practice, the way that like police have been behaving, it has become racist. And so what he essentially was saying is that like, instead of changing the law, we need to change the officers that are enforcing this. Mm -hmm. And what he suggested was, you know, more criminal. He, he suggested sort of like a military, uh, mm -hmm. what is that called? Like a dishonorable discharge. Yeah, um, he suggested that sort of thing for police officers instead of um, changing the law itself. To me, I mean, he, he really was stuck in this way where he's like, it's not the law. Don't change the law, change the officers. But I asked him, you know, I'm like, he, he said at the end of his, his article that candidates, he's talking specifically about um, presidential candidates and state's attorney, et cetera, all these different candidates, should stop focusing, you know, on the law itself and how to change how officers are being reprimanded. And he says specifically change their hearts and minds. And I asked him, I'm like, you know, people don't change their minds or their hearts that often mm -hmm. unless it personally impacts them. And, like, the reality is that this does not impact officers. Like, they are not the ones being targeted. And so I just don't – I asked – I said I don't know how that could happen, how, how they could change their hearts and minds just – like, candidates are appealing to that instead mm -hmm. of, like, making some structural change to stop what's happening from happening. And he just essentially said that, that there needed to be more crackdowns and yeah. – Something I thought was interesting he said was that he would be okay with changing the law if yeah. that's what it came down to, but that he didn't think we should start there. And to me, that's just delaying what needs to be done. Well, what, what the perspective reminded me of, it's kind of like a, it's kind of a comment you hear like in like discussions about like oppressive forces, like, oh, well, it's like, you know, a few bad apples are making this wrong. It's not, it's not the, the institution itself. And that's kind of what it reminded me of anyway. It's like, oh, well, we need to change the hearts and minds of the officers, but it's like, that's, like, like how do you plan on doing that? And especially in, like, a legal system that very much um, benefits, you know, it does not really seek to benefit people of color or people who, you know, non-white, non-straight people, mon, you know, like, it doesn't, it doesn't serve to benefit, um, you know, people who are marginalized in any way, so I, th I thought that was kind of, I think he kind of wrote himself into a corner in that way, because I just don't, I don't know, it's, it seemed when we were talking about this argument, it was kind of like, it was kind of like walking back a lot of the points that he was making in the articles, I don't know, I just... Seems like kind of an unsound argument in that in that regard. So RJ, mm -hmm. you're a 2L law student. You're sitting there getting lectured to by these people all the time. This kind of um, stuck in the theory idea. Is that what you experience with uh, law school professors? Do you think you see that kind of consistent stuck in the theory, not necessarily understanding how it oh, works absolutely. in practice? Yeah, all the time. Um, I say it all the time. Law is taught through the white lens. Um, all the time, you know, even with race-based cases such as Plessy v. Ferguson or Brown v. Board of Education, we're reading these opinions from judges who are white. Mm. We're not really understanding the... Um, we're, not, we're not seeing the point of view of the, the parties involved that are black. You know, we'd, uh, we, we rarely, if ever, you know, go deep into detail about how or why these things um, took place. I remember um, actually a case that we covered in Beatty's class. Um, I don't remember the name, but it was about like a former MLB's play, a former MLB player's son who was um, 
you know, um, attacked by the police. He was a victim of police brutality. And we just looked at it on the face of, like, we just took it as that the police brutalized him and that was it. We didn't really go into detail of, like, why he was targeted by the police, which was, uh, you know, he was a black man. Um, it was, like, I think it was a pretty uh, a famous case. So, you know, looking it up online, you know, you, like, get the details of, like, why he was um, a victim of this brutality. And we just, we, uh... It's very, it's very surface level. We don't really, you know, dive into like the details because I, I don't know. I don't know if it's rather to like make to keep students comfortable that are uncomfortable with talking about those situations, or whether it's uh, you know actively diminishing our experiences as people of color. I'm not really sure, but yeah, law school is very, it's very surface level, white lens, nothing else. And so, when you first saw this story, mm-hmm. what was your immediate reaction? Uh, it didn't really. Um, hit me at first actually um because i I knew i knew something was brewing because you know uh it took place the the week prior i guess in class he said something to the um saying something that he supports stopping first not i don't think it was that that explicit but like it rubs students the wrong way and some students you know they approached him out the class they uh they spoke to him about it and this is all secondhand of course i'm obviously i'm not in the class um, I did have him for crim law my uh, second semester, but this is criminal procedure. But I saw him not in that class, and um, you know I was aware that like of everything that was going on. And so I think it was the Tuesday, this past Tuesday, I was in the uh, boss office, the Black Law Student Association office, uh, and there was a few people in there with me. And um, an email went out to the class. Uh, it was from Beatty, and he was saying, "Oh, hey, everybody, I guess check out this article I wrote, whatever." And uh, <laughs> I pull it up on the uh, on the computer, and you know, everybody in the office, everybody's like reading reading it individually, and there were some strong re- initial reactions. Um, mine wasn't as that strong, um, I guess, because like I'm not in the class, so like I, I don't know, I was just like whatever, and so um, the animosity is just like for like the past, for the next two days, it just kept building. And Tuesday morning, when I saw the LinkedIn post from the director of, mm, I forget the name, Alan, that's when it dawned on me um, with the LinkedIn post because uh, I felt like it was a... Uh, Alan um, Paper is executive director of development for yeah. Paul's University okay, uh, yeah. College of Law. So when I seen that, I just felt like, you know, it was a coalition of support behind this article. It. I don't have the full thing, but it's just, he pulled out basically a quote that said... In truth, there is nothing racist about the actual law or policy itself, and we need to stop saying there is. Um, and then he just basically said it was a thir- uh, thoughtful analysis. Yeah, so as a student of color, you know, when we see that, when we see that type of um, camaraderie amongst the administration in support of that article, it is, like, it's disheartening. Um, because I was telling you guys the other day, um, out, of the law, out of the legal field, black people only make up 3%. Um, I think that's even less for um, Latinos in, a, in the legal field. And so us hearing that, it's kind of like, you know, I, I don't know the word. I don't, I'm trying, not, I'm trying my best not to swear. But, <laughs> okay. I mean, it's um, okay, right? Yeah, oh, fine. okay, yeah, okay. So, like, it's just like... It's not publication. Yeah, okay, bet. So then when we see that, it's just like, hey, fuck y'all. Like, yeah. we're going to side with this, and, like, we don't give a damn about the student of uh, the, the student of color experience at DePaul Law. That's what it, that's what it feels like. And um, it's, just, it's, just like, it's always like our voices, our experiences, and everything is just drowned out. And at this point, you know, I'm two years in, other people are three years in, uh, some people are even one year in, and it's, it's just so exhausting. 
to uh you know go through this um yeah, it's just like from all corners and i was honestly hoping that you know we wouldn't have a, a another professor scandal as my, in my time here but yep. what can you do mm-hmm. I don't know. every year gets one yeah so i wonder where to be next year <laughs> <laughs> and this you know this feels remarkable you're talking about how only three percent of the law profession is black americans mm-hmm. and then you look at um the breakup their breakdown of paul's law school mm-hmm. also has tremendous diversity issues in the sense that they're pulling from a much more diverse crowd of students and they still seem to end up with this really horrifically skewed um population of students mm-hmm. can you just talk a little bit more about like the trust that students of color feel for their administration and their faculty um when they see things like this and are there faculty who are trying to support the students perspective uh for students i know we constantly feel um unheard like i say uh like i just say it's, it's exhausting um I, I would say that probably the relationship with administration is uh leaning more toward distrust just because of the situation that happened a few years ago and um you're talking the, about uh professor herman yeah using the n word yeah the uh the lack of repercussions that arose from that situation uh, like this guy was, I mean, that was a much more severe situation than this, but you know, he, he's still allowed to teach. He's still allowed, uh, he's still employed by the university. And it's, um, I think that might've been the start of, you know, the rocket relationship. I wasn't here, but I was here for, you know, his return this, uh, this current school year. And, um, I don't know. I just, I just know that the common feel or like the common attitude towards administration is distrust because it's just constantly like we feel like they don't have our backs in situations like this um i'm not so sure the steps that are being taken to um address the current situations going on with Betty. i know that um tomorrow um some students our president actually of the black law student association and um some members of the latino uh, law student association will be meeting with um the dean of the university of the law school so um i don't know i guess i'll like hear some things that come out from that but i don't know i mean i don't really i mean i'm not advocating for like you know any like you know punishment or anything but i'm more so just advocating for like the change in the lens that you know that the law school experience brings because again like it's through the white lens and so much so many times the experience of the student color is just diminished so Whenever there's reaction to something like this, uh, especially in an academic format, where mm-hmm. a professor voices a generally unpopular opinion, um, there's lots of outrage. Do you do you think that there's room in academia for for people with perspectives like Manu Beatty mm-hmm. to be there and to share those, um, so long as there is kind of a countering perspective, mm-hmm. or do you think that? there should be an effort to kind of eliminate those perspectives entirely. Okay, so here's where I am, well, here's where I am with you. Uh, I'm a firm believer that there's a time and a place for everything. That's how I go through life. Um, like I wouldn't say an inappropriate thing in like an inappropriate circumstance, but uh, I know a lot of people like to operate under the idea that, you know, debate is good. Having these type of conversations uh, is a good thing. And I feel like, you know, that's something that when he wrote this article, he was like going toward. But I'm in the idea of that um, debate, it it can, like when it comes to like situations like this, it, it can be unnecessary because when you're uh, perpetuating harmful ideology, 
uh, like assume uh, uh, proclaiming that stop and frisk isn't racist, that, that's harmful ideology. There's no room for debate on that because um, uh, one of my friends, she put it perfectly the other day. She said that um, debating situations like that come from a place of privilege because when you're able to debate things and uh, advocate that stop and frisk isn't racist, mm -hmm. you're advocating against the people who are living those experiences. And at the end of the day, you can go back and you have those ideologies that, you know, stop and frisk isn't racist, but the person that you're debating that has those experiences, they're going to go back and live that experience. And you're and, and, and through the debate, you're diminishing that that experience that they're just going to go back and live. Mm -hmm. So to me, uh, I agree that debate comes uh, from a place of privilege. I don't I don't I don't I don't converse uh, with these topics with people who have those ideologies just because, you know, it's a uh, it's a it's a subscription to harmful rhetoric and there, to me there's just no place for that um i think it's unnecessary uh i mean i hate uh and people might look at this and hear this and say oh you know you're just um opposed to um opposition um different differing opinions and when that's not the case because uh these opinions are harmful to me as a black man and i there's no burden on me <laughs> to listen to these opinions like there's no law that says I have to listen to these opinions. There's no law that says I have to debate these opinions because I live these experiences. I know what they are. So I don't have to, you know, get lectured to why a law isn't racist when I know for a fact that it is because it was taken and weaponized and therefore that makes it racist. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, I don't yeah, know. I feel like I'm rambling, but... No, no, it's, yeah. 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 Um, made so much sense. I think that's a perfect place. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I totally agree. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, RJ, thank you so much. Oh, yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm Ella. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> so, for our next story this week, we have an opinion story from the one and only opinions editor, Emma. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, Emma, this week you wrote about the university counseling services mm -hmm. and your experience, um, which unfortunately has just come to an end. Um, yes. Can you talk a little bit about? your experience with them and what kind of compelled you to write about it. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, back in June of 2019, I lost my dad very suddenly, which was obviously very tough on me mentally. And so I knew like kind of in the immediate wake of it that I, I needed to see someone about it, see a professional um, counselor for it, just because uh, grief like that's very isolating and I just didn't want to be locked up in it. And so my mom was just starting a new job. So like our insurance hadn't quite kicked in yet. So I knew that DePaul had services here for students. And I thought I'll try that out, see how I like it. So I wanted to say, I want to say I started there like early July as when my first session was. And um, I was told like from the beginning that I had a cap number of sessions, like every student, 20 total. And that each session was a $5 fee at the door. So I, I went into it knowing that. That wasn't like a thing they, they threw at me last minute. Um, starting there was kind of tough just because, I mean, that's, it's hard like to open up someone you don't know about that stuff. And, you know, it's just, it was, yeah, it was just really kind of taxing emotionally at first. But then, I mean, the more I went there, the more just comfortable I felt. It got to the point where, you know, I really looked forward to going there. I really appreciated my counselor. She was very empathetic and very just open. And I appreciated that a lot. Um, but then, yeah, uh, this past week, I reached my 20 session, meaning that I can never go there again um, if I'm ever in need of a counselor, which incidentally I am. So <laughs> it's kind of putting me in a tough place. Um, yeah, what sparked me to write it is just when I, I, I think about like how much, you know, money I give to Paul and how much all of us pay to Paul and how, 
you know, they're so tied up in, like, this, like, Vincentian mission, whatever the fuck that means, about, you know, like, helping the needy and being altruistic. But then when it comes to students, they just kind of don't give a fuck. Um, I think it's, I, I, you know, I don't have numbers from the university, not like they give it to me by ass, but I don't assume that a lot of money is going there, yeah. considering that um, you have to pay for each session, um, which I think is really irresponsible just because I feel like that's such a necessity because so many people are just not doing well and not even just like for, you know, not even in my case, which is kind of like a really extreme situation. But I mean, like, it's really hard to be a young adult and to live in a city and pay your own bills and worry about the future. And especially considering how like, how, like contentious of a time we live in, like, there's just so much shit going on. I feel like it's so irresponsible of the university to not have those resources more readily available for students while at the same time like marketing themselves as like a very like compassionate like you know mm. for the people sort of school which it yeah. just isn't and talking about their 700 million dollar endowment yeah stuff it's, like that. yeah they're, they're, the money is there they just don't think it's a priority and that's so mm. fucked up yeah one of the things that points you made in your uh, story and Without this point, you make a clearly compelling case already. But the thing that I think was really drove home the point that this needs to be available for everyone, mm-hmm. particularly around for our generation, because yeah. we live in a generation that's plagued by anxiety and depression yeah. and the social media world. Um, I mean, you, I know you had some dialogue with your counselor Mm -hmm. about this did she seem to have any kind of thoughts on whether or not they're doing this enough providing enough support for students well yeah in our last session she she asked me how i was feeling about you know having to end i told her kind of point blank i thought it sucked um i don't and the thing and to make very clear i don't blame her or the department even because Mm -hmm. i mean it's a policy and it's a bad policy but i don't really think the ball's in their court on that end i mean like, I cannot stress enough how, like, much I valued my time with her and, like, how, like, much she really helped me out. Like, especially even just with moving forward, like, getting resources to move forward and continue sessions after I was done. I mean, she said to me that she wished that she could have treated me more. Because, I mean, at the same time, too, it's probably not easy for, you know, a professional to get, you know, to be so involved, like, in a, in a patient's life and have to, like, never see them again, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't ask her about, like finances or whatever because like, I didn't want to like implicate yeah. her you know it was all you know there's that confidentiality thing but it's <laughs> I mean I just from what I could tell I mean she seemed to think it was a little bit unfair also um that it had to end and I mean she, but she was really really helpful with me um like trying to move forward and like find other resources because like it's just not fair to dump students out in their ass like with no with no resources following such a like tough thing to go through yeah so the really horrible piece of their policy is this 20-cap session mm-hmm. thing. Uh, and when you told me about that, I was, I mean, as someone who's done a lot of therapy in my own life, mm-hmm. I know that 20 sessions yeah. is not a solution to any problem. No. Um, can you just talk a little bit more about, from your perspective, why capping the amount of sessions you need in talk therapy is just so dangerous and irresponsible? Yeah, it's just irresponsible because... Um, you know, the, at least in my from my from my experience, the things that I talked about there are things that I, I can't talk about with like my best friend, or, like even my family. It's really deep personal shit, and it takes kind of a long time, at least for me, like to establish that kind of trust with someone I don't know. And so, doing all of that and then having to just kind of stop, like right in the middle of like whatever progress I was making, and go to someone else. It's just like. 
like the trust isn't there with the new person and also it's just having to re-explain like everything that's like happened that led me to this point it's just really emotionally taxing and also i mean if you, i mean i'm fortunate in the sense that i have health insurance and i have you know a list of a name a list of providers willing for that i can go to if needed you know it's a bit more expensive but you know i can i could do it but for students who don't have health insurance students who you know don't have a lot of money you know students who are balancing bills and tuition and all that i mean that's it's, it's really a luxury to be able to do that unfortunately and like i said you know depaul makes they charge so much in tuition and students just pay so much and they just like deplete themselves financially to go here and then they just get like scraps and it's just like a slap in the face and it's like the first like when i thought about it it's the first time i thought like, man this university does not give a shit about the people that go here they just seem as like you know zeros in their fucking checkbook or something yeah the other thing that I love that you did in your story was tie this into the Ascension mission. Oh, thank you. And I want to end on this. Sure. Can you draw up that case briefly for me? How this just plainly doesn't square with what this university professes to be all about? I mean, so okay, I'm not Catholic, so I don't know about. Sure. I, yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't know about how the how the how Catholic values tie into us, but I do know that when I was, you know, attending orientation as a freshman, you know going to admit students days, they really push the Vincentian mission as like a selling point um, for students and their families. You know, it's a, it's rooted in service and altruism and, you know, being, you know, helping out those who need it the most. But it's just like, it's such bullshit. What does DePaul do? Mm-hmm. Like, what do they do? I don't, I'm, I'm actually asking, like, how do they benefit the people that go here other than just giving them a diploma? An overpriced one. An overpriced <laughs> diploma. And I think about it, it's like, I'm going to leave this university with so much fucking debt um, something I think about a lot actually, and I, they charge me like, you know, five figures every quarter to go here and it's like, what? So I can have a, a morally dubious basketball arena <laughs> and a, you know, a U-pass that doesn't work during the summer. It's just, it's just, the reason why it bothers me so much is that they preach so much about being, you know, helpful to the needy and then we give them so much and we get nothing back. Like just the resources that we are given are just complete dog shit. And it really just put things into perspective for me. Like they just use that to get money from us. They just use it because they know it sounds nice on like a billboard or in like a prospective student's pamphlet. It's just not, it's just all talk and no, you know, no, no actually applying it and how they treat their students or their faculty as we've reported on a million times, um, mm-hmm. how they treat their staff. It's just all about money. And it's just so, it just makes like my skin crawl. It's just so nasty. I don't know what's wrong with this university. Ugh. Well, powerful stuff. We're going to end there. Okay. Thank you for uh, telling your story. Thank you. Make sure to include my sound effect in there too. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Thanks. Right. Page 29 is produced by Editor-in-Chief Shane Renee, Online Managing Editor Bianca Cheka, and produced and edited by Multimedia Editor Hannah Mitchell. Thanks for joining us.